Hello, it's Monday, February the 7th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... Guess what's back in style? It's even on the catwalks. Denim. What a relief it never went out of fashion. I've been wearing it all the time. Now it's food prices soaring. Their boss of Tesco says up by 5%, and he says keep your bread in the fridge. Where else would you put it? The NHS, the great catch-up plan to reduce waiting lists, has been blocked by the Chancellor. Political skullduggery, or is it the Chancellor wants to ensure the money spent where it's really needed? But first, Queen Camilla. The Queen has decreed that Camilla Parker Bowles, when Charles becomes King, will be known as the Queen Consort. I'm talking to her biographer. So the Queen has put an end to years of speculation, frankly, by saying she wants Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, to have the title of Queen Consort when the Prince of Wales becomes King. It was in a message marking the 70th anniversary of her reign that the Queen said it was her sincere wish Camilla would have that title. Of course, when they, Camilla and Charles were engaged, when the engagement was announced, it was said by the palace at the time it was intended that she would be known as Princess Consort. Well, joining me now is the Royal Commentator and author Angela Levin, who is, of course, writing a biography who is on the woman who is now the future Queen Consort. Angela, um, timing is everything. Um, before we talk about the Queen Consort, tell us about the biography. Do you have a working title yet? And um, will her friends cooperate with you? Well, her friends have cooperated, so has former staff, so has lots of people who she's involved in, in charities. Yes, I've been I'm jolly lucky about that. Uh, loads of them, and they've also, um, nobody's wanted to speak off the record, which is even better. Yes. So watch this space. Well, yes. it's got a title that I think is going to be changed now. It's a working title yeah. called Camilla Duchess of Cornwall, uh, a royal survivor, but I think... Maybe the Duchess of Cornwall should um, be put aside and we should think of something else. But that's yeah. plenty of time to do that. What have the, 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 what the, way, what the Queen's done? Um, uh, I think perhaps it was a surprise to some of us, but perhaps not surprising that that is the Queen's wish, that Camilla will be Queen Consort. Yes, I think um, Camilla and the Queen have got increasingly close together um they've got a lot in common of course horses dogs they both love charles and have a huge sense of duty but the queen being a very religious woman she was very uh angry and disappointed in charles that he couldn't get rid of her and that um, she cannot have a divorcee um marrying the heir to the throne but she realized after they got married, how she was taking one patronage after another, how she was being so devoted to Prince Charles' absolute total support and accepted him for who he was, and that she brought into the royal family a sort of taboo subjects that they'd never really touched before, which is um, abuse of women, rape, and all those sorts of things that she's very happy to talk about and ask direct questions about most of all talk to the victims and see if she can somehow um, help them uh, often in practical ways uh, and the importance of literacy and reading which she does for all ages and all types and is being a great success so you look at that person and after 70 
17 years um, being a married woman to the heir to the throne, you realize that she's actually terrific. And I think the pandemic helped because then uh, Camilla could put to loads of people via Zoom and they would see that she's very funny, very warm and has a mischievous look in her eyes. Whereas before and even now, when she's there supporting Prince Charles and he's really the man who's doing the, the visit to whatever charity or whatever it is, uh, she has a step behind rather mm. like the Duke of Edinburgh, but it looks not quite the same. And she doesn't uh, speak out. She doesn't push ahead to try and shake hands with somebody before he gets there. Um, and so I think uh, there's been a gradually, uh, gradual opening up of realising what a, a, a terrific um, queen consort she will be. Do you think there's an element to, the Queen is 95, um, she wanted this uh, out, it's a perfect time to do it on her, the 70th anniversary of her reign, her platinum jubilee, uh, And but the, the Queen is completely sound in mind and spirit. Uh, perhaps if this was announced when she was 99, people may say, oh, well, she wasn't quite, what she didn't quite know what she was doing, what she was thinking. She wanted to be quite clear that the country knew quite clearly that this is her wish. And because it's her wish, some people who might otherwise have been reluctant about Queen Camilla will be more likely to accept it. Spot on. Absolutely spot on. There's still not a fantastic percentage wanting her because there are a lot of people who still um, hang on to Diana's image and the wonderful person she was but also forget that she wasn't uh, she she had very many difficulties from her poor upbringing um, and they sort of put that forward or oh, the country doesn't want her but the, the queen has huge numbers of percentage I think it's 87 percent of people mm. want her and admire her and if she says this as her wish a she knows Camilla extremely well whereas most people don't um, and secondly, that she actually said, I hope you will support them, you know, I would like I have been supported. And I think she's a hard act to say no to. Yeah. And um, she's tough. I also think there's a small element maybe of preceding Prince Harry's memoirs that are going to come out. Yes. Where it's rumoured that he's going to be very nasty about Camilla, not just about herself, but to upset his father, as he's done several times. Mm. And it looks uh, worse if you're talking about the woman who's you, going to uh, be oh, absolutely. Queen's consort. You, you wonder, actually, Angela, you've talked to Harry over the years with the book, the, the book you wrote about him. You do wonder, he's, he'll have an eye on public opinion, if that was his intention or if he's already written it, whether he'll change it. Now he knows that Camilla... Is, to go, is going to be Queen Consul. Yes, well, I, I'm not sure because I think the book was almost finished or yeah. almost coming out. They've been very secretive about that. But I think it will um, not shine a good light on him. He's probably said enough for knocking his his father and his stepmother. Yeah. But to carry on like that, I think it could reverberate. And whether that's somebody's brilliant idea, whether it's an absolute coincidence, I have no idea. But it just reminded me, well, our queen is very canny. She knows how to do things and she does them neatly and completely. And it could be one of those things. Indeed. And just finally, Angela, your book on uh, the Duchess of Cornwall, the future Queen Consort, when do you think we'll be uh, reading that? Um, 
Well, sort of beginning of September, I think. Oh, as soon as that. Yes, yes. I've been on it a while. Yeah. And uh, it should definitely be out. Well, that's the aim. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't suppose she talked to you, did she? Um, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I should say you about well. it. Let don't me just you say that. Yeah. Let me just say that. It's gone very well. I've been very, I can't say lacking, but I, I, I've had a lot of help um, well, from um, important sources. Well, the, the thing is, Angela, uh, you make your luck and you've been doing this a long time. So that's Angela Levin, author and royal commentator. Her book, Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, A Royal Survivor, to be published later this year, but we think with a different title. Come and reveal it on the podcast first, Angela. Okay. Lovely to talk to you. That's Angela Levin. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to the Andrew Pierce Show for free in full, along with our podcast and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So, a last-minute hitch, a last-minute intervention. Is it politicking by the chance of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak? We're not sure, but plans to tackle the backlog of patients on hostile waiting lists in England appear to have been delayed. Details of the NHS England scheme were expected to be published today, Monday, but that's not happened. On the line now is Professor Carol Sikora, consultant oncologist and professor of medicine at the University of Buckingham Medical School. Professor Sikora, we know that uh, the, well I've written about this quite a lot, that the Chancellor of Sunak, he's got one eye on being Prime Minister, top dog of course, but I'm pretty sure um, any delay in releasing money for tackling the waiting list is not about that. Is it more to do with the fact that Treasury wants to ensure that if more billions are ploughed into the NHS, it's targeted carefully and directly at dealing with the waiting list crisis? I'm sure that's right. That the, that the problem with throwing money at a structure like the NHS, it may not get you the results you actually want. Uh, you know, this is a problem of logistics. Here we have thousands of people who've been waiting for something, some of them will actually have cancer. We've got to find those needles in the haystack, if you like, pick them up and get them started on treatment. But the biggest block to getting started is getting the diagnosis made. So what we've got to do is uncover slots for CT scans, for MR scans, for biopsies and so on, and put the money into that, not to sort of nebulous building projects, the other problem we have is that it's got to be done quickly. So we've got no time to buy more equipment or lease it or get lorries from Europe, all these sort of schemes, build Nightingale hospitals, forget it. We've got to do it this weekend. And that means finding slots and paying people to do them. So that's what I would use the money for, to pay people to use existing equipment out of ours to get through the backlog. The other thing, of course, what in an ideal world, uh, Professor Sakura, would be additional staff to um, uh, work in the NHS. But um, getting qualified doctors, getting qualified nurses, that's not easy. It's not. And it's the same for the radiographers that do the x-rays and scans, for the radiographers that do the treatment with radiotherapy, the chemotherapy nurses, the pharmacists. You know, the NHS works at a capacity. There is no spare capacity the way it's currently working. What we've got to do is say, hang on, we did well with COVID. We've all hands on deck with COVID. Let's identify private sector provision. Let's commandeer that. Let's look at how we can get people working at weekends. We have to pay them. And, you know, we have to pay them probably more than they get during the week. Uh, and I think there'd be enough goodwill in the system to get a scheme like that going. Um, you know, 
sort of grand schemes don't apply here. There is no time for a grand scheme or we'll use, lose a year's worth of cancer patients. Is it also, I wonder what you make of this plan, um, Professor, that a, an overhaul of hospital operations may allow patients to find out the waiting time at their local hospital. If it's a long wait, they can shop around for a hospital with a shorter waiting list and book themselves in. Is this all part of trying to make the NHS adapt quickly to this uh, pent-up demand? Absolutely, and it, it's a great idea. You were so far behind with IT, even in clinical IT in the hospital system. Uh, in terms of consumer IT, it's really in its infancy. You know, last week I bought a budget airline ticket uh, for myself, and it was so easy. It was also very cheap, but all the alternatives are there, and you can see it beautifully displayed. I'm not, I'm not an IT wizard, I can tell yeah. you, yeah. and yet I found it so easy. You don't find that. The NHS app for your GP and so on is just clunky and doesn't really give you any option to make appointments uh, because we're so busy. That's the sort of impression it gives you. And your, your, your problem is not important to us. It's the opposite of a, a marketing message you normally get when you buy something on the, on the web. Just finally, Professor, how quickly can they get this sorted, do you think, the logjam which the Treasury wants unblocked? I think it's six months. Oh, really? Uh, at least six months. Maybe, uh, you know, some of the things like cash rack operations, hip replacement, could be two or three years. Uh, there just isn't the capacity for that. But if you take the cancer backlog, if it's not cleared within six months, more people will die unnecessarily because of the backlog. That's very depressing, isn't it? It is. It is. So we've got to really get something going quickly. Indeed we do. That's Carol Segura, consultant oncologist and professor of medicine at the University of Buckingham Medical School. Thanks as ever for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. Don't forget to get in touch by tweeting us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So the Tesco boss John Allen has warned that food prices are set to rise by five percent in the spring and says the worst is yet to come it's the latest bad news amid a growing cost of living crisis driven by rocketing energy prices and let's not forget the uh, national insurance rise which the government's seen fit to introduce in april joining me now is james Passad, who's head of marketing at the charity fair share which ensures the redistribution of surplus food to avoid waste james this is bleak, isn't it? Because people are already struggling on a number of levels. Uh, national insurance will go up in April. The wretched uh, cap on energy prices goes, and that's going to put around £700 on the annual energy bill. Is this going to be a choice, in some cases, of heating or food, but not both? Absolutely, Andrew. There are some very difficult, if not impossible, choices um, being made now by the most vulnerable people in our communities and it's a problem that's not going to get any better soon. Um, according to the government's own figures, 5 million people are in food insecure households struggling enough to get to eat and that was prior to the most recent announcement. So we understand from the Food Foundation, who are a charity that um, develop policies and statistics around food insecurity, that that's estimated to go have gone up during the pandemic to 7 million people two million of whom are children your charity is it's key in all of this because um i think one in five charities say they'd close if you stop providing food to them 
That's right. We um, provide food to 10,500 charities and community groups across the UK. So essentially the entire UK food using voluntary sector. So imagine your local Salvation Army or um, Crisis Shelter or Emmaus Hostel. Fairshare is providing the food to many of those charities which saves them money on their grocery bills, which means they can reinvest in the wraparound care services that tackle the causes of poverty as mm -hmm. well as the, the, the sort of hunger itself. Um, and the charities, you know, they tell us that they rely on that food and they rely on that, that saving in order to deliver the sort of vital services they do, whether that's financial advice for people uh, with debt challenges, whether it's rehabilitation services, um, for people coming back from illness, whether it's counselling for people with mental health challenges, there's the full range in that 10,500 charities of, of all sorts of um, vulnerabilities that people have. Could be breakfast clubs for children that don't get a breakfast before school, after school clubs for uh, children who have working parents, um, you know, an enormous number of people um, supported by, by the UK voluntary sector. Um, and fair share getting food to over 1.2 million people every year. It's an awful lot of people. Now, I think John Allen, the Tesco chairman, I mean, he, he let the cat out the bag about the rising food prices, but I think he had some sensible things to say too. I wonder if you agree with him. He said, keep your bread in the fridge. Well, mine's always been in the fridge, has to be said. Yeah. He also said, ignore some best before dates. Uh, and again, I go back, I'm, I'm probably a lot older than you, James. When we were kids, there weren't any sell-by dates. If there was green on the bread, we cut it off. Yes. No, I agree. So the legal date uh, to definitely uh, not consume food after is the use-by date. Yes. But there's a best-before date, which um, increasingly people are being asked to use their common sense. And it was called the sniff test most recently. So with That's right. Milk with Morrison's. It was um, use, use your own senses to determine whether a pint of milk is off or okay. Um, ditto, particularly fruit and vegetables, you know, people are able to make up their own judgment on whether an apple is edible or not, depending on their, you know, their uh, likes and dislikes. Um, so we have actually a movement away from best before dates and things like fruit and vegetables, but certainly used by dates must be adhered to. Uh, and it's important for organisations like yours, Fair Share, that people, uh, rather than throw food away, they um, take it somewhere useful, maybe take it to a food bank, take it to a charity. Um, uh, is that your advice to people? Absolutely. So, I mean, Fair Share tend to work with the food businesses. So yes. farmers, manufacturers and supermarkets um, yeah. to get the enormous quantities of food that are surplus to you know, customer requirements at the time. You imagine if you're a farmer producing lettuces for a big retailer, you're, you're highly likely to produce a few more lettuces to, in order to honour your contract and in order to fulfil your order. What Fairshare is trying to do is get hold of those lettuces. It's a terrible example. Let's, have, let's go for potatoes, something more nutritious, um, that then we can redistribute and they're perfectly fine. Um, and actually, they're oftentimes fresher than I would buy myself in a supermarket because it's sort of, two weeks before they'd actually make their way to a supermarket. As far as individuals are concerned, there are um, some apps that people can use to share food that they have cooked um, but haven't eaten. So there's things like Olio, O-L-I-O, and Too Good To Go, and another one called Karma. Um, and this is, a, this is a new area of kind of growth um, in the sustainable sort of food industry where there are now sort of, yeah, sharing 
food sharing apps that you can download and um, use to share your, you know, your lovely leftover food. Yeah, and why waste it? That's the point. Um, just remind it's us what right. those apps are, James, again. The one's called Olio, O-L-I-O. Yep. One is called Too Good To Go. Yeah. All words, no numbers. And yeah. the other one is called Karma with a K. Got it. All right, that's James Passad. He's head of marketing at Fair Share, who's um, very prominent ambassador, of course, is that very fine Manchester United footballer, Marcus Rashford, who's really helped put you on the map. Thanks for joining us. So, after a massive weekend in the world of sport, Matt Gatwood, Deputy Sports Editor, is here with the latest. Well, even I was intoxicated by Boreham Wood. <laughs> Winning 1-0, a, a team that's almost in the Premier League, Bournemouth, great result. Absolutely. Superb result. Obviously, Boreham Wood, fifth tier. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they, they're not used to playing at this level. Um, they, they obviously beat, um, they were giant killers in the last round because they beat uh, MK Dons. But then to get this far uh, and to, as you say, play against Bournemouth, who are almost a Premier League club, mm. uh, they'll certainly be pushing to get promotion this season. Uh, and it's not long ago that they were in the Premier League. And it's at Bournemouth's and, ground. And to do it, it at Bournemouth's ground as yeah. well, rather than at their own ground. You often get these upsets when it's yeah. the uh, when it's the little team who were playing at home but this was at Bournemouth's ground and um, yeah, Bournemouth rested a few players because they've got bigger fish to fry they would mm. say in terms of getting promotion to the Premier League but they brought all the big guns on by the end the last half hour it was uh, it was pretty much one way traffic and Boreham Wood looked out on their feet you know they were exhausted yeah, their 37 year old skipper who uh -huh. scored the um, who scored the winning goal uh, had to go off with about five minutes to go he looked like he was going to collapse a few of them were going down with cramp and couldn't move but they held on and, yeah, and a fantastic it's, it's the magic of the cup, and it's are are they all full time players for Boreham Wood? Are some of them part time? Yeah, I think pretty much they'd all be full time right. uh, at that level. Uh, they're about fifth in the national league, so right. they're one step away from being in the in the football league. So. Um, and they, they've, they've got a reasonably wealthy backer, so I think they'd be full-time. Mm. Um, and their prize uh, in the next round is a trip to Goodison Park to play Everton, Everton under, under Frank Lampard. Which will be lots of money for them, too, because there'll be a big attendance. Oh, indeed, yeah. And, they, and presumably it'll be on telly, so they'll get a cut of the TV yeah. deal as well. So, um, absolutely, they'll be made up by it. So they it's can, a really, they really can good... They pay off their debts or buy a new player. Indeed. So it's fantastic news Love for them. It. And they've got this player, I don't, we did a feature on him at the weekend, who served time and it was... Um, uh, on a TV show that Ian Wright, the old Arsenal yeah, player, put on uh, where he went into prisons to visit players mm. and, and they put on a, a prison team and it was a documentary on Sky. Um, and then he, when he came out of prison, Ian Wright helped him get a trial at a club and he's now obviously making his way, sorted his life out and making his way in the in, in football. So he was a lovely story. He came on for the last five minutes as well yesterday. So uh, another great uh, subplot, which is the only the FA Cup can throw up. Really. I agree. And the, and the holders, Leicester knocked out by Champions League. Nottingham Forest <laughs> by Championship Nottingham Forest exactly yeah. yeah so another another big upset now Nottingham Forest in the last round you'll remember um, were lucky enough to scrape past Arsenal so they've right. now knocked out oh, Arsenal yeah they knocked out your team how could I have forgotten Indeed. that Matt? so they've knocked out Arsenal and now um, and now the holders mm. Leicester um, so and yesterday I mean obviously they were very fortunate to beat Arsenal mm. but yesterday they absolutely blew Leicester away beat them four one scored three goals in nine minutes. Mm. Uh, Result was never in doubt. By far the better team. Um, 
and thoroughly deserved it. And they're, you know, Steve Cooper, their new manager, is certainly doing some great work there, and they're they're looking like they're on the on the way up. And they next play Huddersfield at home, so they'll fancy their chances of winning that. Yeah, very good. Now the rugby, uh, if it looked because I didn't watch it obviously, but it was very close. The scoreline twenty seventeen. Yeah, twenty seventeen Scotland. Scotland. But apparently we blew it. England. Absolutely blew it. Yeah, and Eddie Jones has come in for the England coach has been coming for a lot of criticism. Right. Uh, over the last 48 hours because England were controlling the game. They were um, 17-10 up. Marcus Smith, the you know the stellar uh, fly half, who's this young wonder kid who everyone's been you know mm. eager to see and get in the team, um, was playing really well. He'd scored all England's points, all 17 of England's points. 63 minutes in what very much looked like a predetermined or premeditated uh, decision. Took him off, brought George Ford on. Also made some other changes, but at that point, the whole game fell apart from an England point of oh. view. Scotland then scored a penalty try, which was, you know, um, stupid from England. They lot, they, it was, the, the decision to take Smith was compounded by a lot of individual errors as well. Uh, Luke Cowan Dickey, the hooker, made a poor decision um, uh, under pressure and gave a penalty try away. But then England had other chances and they, they kicked for touch where they could take a line out to try and score a try rather than kicking for um, a penalty, which would have gotten three points which would have got them level with a couple of minutes to go. So they made a lot of poor decisions under pressure. Um, and, and, and a fair few of them come down to Eddie Jones. The substitutions, there were other things like he didn't bring on the proper person to replace Luke Cowan Dickey while he was in the mm. sin bin, blah, blah, blah. So there were lots of decisions that will fall on Eddie Jones's shoulders. It's the third year in a bounce. We've lost the first game in the Six Nations, which means you're very unlikely to win the whole thing. Mm. You know, and we're meant to be the, you know, the best team in it, or the, you know, certainly one of the best teams in it. But, you know, we were the better team. That was what was frustrating from yeah. an England point of view. They were the better team until 60 minutes when for some illogical reason Eddie Jones made these changes and brought on his finishers as he liked to call them well all they did on Saturday was finish our chances of winning the uh, winning the Six Nations I'd have thought I think I was right to have watched Miss Marple instead of rugby <laughs> it was a thrilling game it was right. fascinating okay. it was edge I'll of the seat stuff okay even though we are. now finally Senegal have won the African the African Cup of Nations yes ah. yes for their first time so it was, nice. that was last night it was uh, it was um, Sadio Mane plays for Liverpool play, uh, and Senegal playing against uh, Mohamed Salah who plays for Liverpool as well so his mm. teammate who plays for Egypt Egypt have won it eight times Senegal have never won it uh, Senegal in fact have lost twice before in the final and finally uh, they got their first title so they beat Egypt in the final they beat Egypt in the final score? Uh, well it was actually nil-nil oh, uh, I know yeah and then it went to penalties penalty shootout right. quite a dramatic penalty shootout but the emotion at the end on the uh, on the faces well of the Senegal players absolutely overjoyed and the Egyptians were completely distraught so um, it's a you know it's a massive event that sometimes gets sort of downplayed in this country as being an inconvenience because mm. it's in the middle of the Premier League season but you know you only need to see the the faces of the players last night at the full-time whistle or at the end of the penalty sorry to know how much it matters so it was yeah, brilliant and, and it was and, good for and, Senegal and as you say some of our leading players w were taking part absolutely yeah yeah and then the clubs you know the clubs and fans all moan about why is he going off playing in that but it, it matters and it's mm. very important so it's good on them that they do how did Arsenal get on at the weekend we chose not to play because it was FA Cup weekend so we were resting in Dubai of course you weren't. <laughs> Swindon? Matt, uh, they lost at home. Not good. Oh dear. To Exeter as well. Really oh, bad. Oh dear. I oh know. Not good. That's Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Cheers. 
So it's the humble jean. It's back in fashion in a big way this year. Couture shows in Paris, no less, are showing off denim in all shapes and sizes. Baggy and blue, pale and old, or just plain winter white. Marina Fogel, who's producer of the weekly podcast The Parenthood, and she's also founder of the bump class wrote about the return of denim for the mail today and joins me now marina do you have do you need to declare an interest here are you a denim fan absolutely i don't think i've ever not been a denim fan it's i think of all the pieces of clothing that stayed with me my whole life it's been denim it's something that i always return to and in different styles and in different sizes and i look back at what i loved in my 20s and i kind of shudder um but it's always denim we always come back to denim we do, we do. Now, you're, for the first time in living memory, every style is in. Baggies, high-rise, flares, straight, skinny, ripped. I did nev- I've never got the point of the ripped bit, by the way. Um, I'm not a fan of the ripped jeans. My knees yeah. get too cold. Yeah, exactly. And you say even that staple of the 90s, the bootleg, is back. Is, an- is any of those in particular proving more popular than others, Marina? Well, I spoke to uh, Donna Ida, who is the sort of jean queen of London, and she, I asked her just because she sells so many styles of jeans, and she said it's the bootleg. Um, and actually, she persuaded me to try a bootleg, and I haven't worn a bootleg since, you know, I was in my Levi's when I was about 22, and I really wasn't keen to try it, but it looked great. It was very flattering, and um, so, so I totally see why. Yeah. Uh, And what about prices? Uh, Are they reasonable, unreasonable? Well, the thing about denim is that it's probably one of the most democratic items of clothing. You can pay what you want. You know, you can go into H&M and pick up a pair of jeans that, you know, are great, very fashionable, very of the moment for £11. But um, I had a look on Net-A-Porter to see what the most expensive pair of jeans on there was. £2,700. Oh, let's have two pairs. Let's have two or even three. Uh, but I don't think there is another item of clothing where there's such uh, diversity in price. Um, and I think that's what is another thing that's so appealing about the jean. You can literally wear it to, you know, we have put your children in them. I remember wearing Oshkosh Bagosh dungarees when I was kind of learning to walk. And then there are people that will wear them to the sort of smartest functions and will spend, you know, upwards of £2,000 on a pair of jeans. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because I think a lot of people relate to you describing the decades because when you look back into life, you can separate it into eras according to the style of gene. So the 90s, the rise of the designer gene. Absolutely, absolutely. And the rise of the very expensive gene too. Yes. Before that, you had your Levi's that were... I mean, they were like 30, 40 pounds, which was obviously still quite significant at the mm. time. But I remember it was the end of the 90s when I bought my first pair of designer jeans and it felt that they were a step up. But it also felt that they were more acceptable because they were, you know, before then, jeans were sort of casual wear. They weren't accepted in smart restaurants or smart hotels. I remember you couldn't go into Harrods in, in a ripped pair of jeans. And, and, you know, even some of the members clubs, I remember going... For, for lunch with my mother at, uh, I think it was the, the some London club, and I was told, no, you can't come in because you're in jeans. And now that's all changed. The dress codes largely, I mean, bar a few, largely have been upgraded to say, you know, by all means come in jeans as long as they're smart jeans. And that reflects how we see jeans. They are no longer that kind of, you know, workwear that they were. They are now considered sort of high fashion. And, you know, the yeah. fact that they're on the catwalk is, is amazing. Well, I was just about to say, I mean, all the years, um, I don't, I mean, of course, it, it's not my area of, 
uh, Marina, but um, denim on the catwalk, I would have thought, is an in a, is new. I think, I think, well, I think it Newish. has been on the catwalk for a while. I think what's, un- exactly, it's definitely something in the sort of last 20 years. Um, but um, certainly it was frequently seen on the catwalk this season. Uh, but I think what was different is, was it, it was all the styles. You know, prior to that, um, I think uh, it was Alexander McQueen who came up yeah. with a sort of very low-slung jean in the 90s, you know, where you sort of you saw your underwear underneath it, which I shudder to think of now. Um, but that it was very much a style. I think what's unique about this year is that actually whatever style you feel suits you, that you feel comfortable in, is sort of of the moment this year. And that's what's quite unusual about this year. Are you wearing jeans as we speak? I am. I'm there wearing a, a, a high-rise pair of uh, sort of wide-leg jeans that are so comfortable. I know wash really easily and also look quite smart. Of course they do. That's Marina Fogor. The fabulous Marina Fogor has written a brilliant piece about denim in the mail today. She's the producer, of course, of the weekly podcast, The Parenthood, and founder of The Bump Class. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night to you. Listener.